good singing. You may be seated. I think I'm on. There I am. Scott wasn't sure. I had to turn myself on. So, Good singing this morning across the board. I think learning a song that is an old, faithful, doctrinal song like Lead On, O King Eternal is good for us. If we didn't know it, now we do. And it's rich in its meaning and its purpose. If you can't say this morning, Hallelujah, what a Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation where you would understand and know the truth. I had to pause when I was looking at the order of services because I thought the special music was by a group. It says, By the Gentle Waters. That's apparently the group's name now. But I think that was actually the song they sang for us, and it was beautiful. And then we just sung of the fact that the Savior leads us, and we are committing to having Him lead us all the way. Well, that's where we are in Psalm 23. I appreciate those who are able to sing and have been gifted or at least given a talent and ability and have exercised that talent and ability for the Lord's glory. I especially appreciate, I appreciate Ethan. I mean, he's one of the teenagers here, so he kind of gets that. He's about to graduate in May, but I particularly appreciate Evan and Alyssa. And I appreciate Zach and Sarah. I mean, they, they participate, but those two just came home from college. They've been away at college and they came home And poor Alyssa is only singing because I asked her to last week. Uh, Alyssa, as she grew up here, I enjoyed hearing her sing, and so she was, that shows her intellect. She said, I'll sing, but I'll do it in a group. That was smart, but it was wonderful. I appreciate it. It was a song that when I was a kid growing up at the church school I was a part of, we sang. It's a wonderful song. Great truth, great depth, and great meaning for us. Well, let's read this morning the psalm again as we read it last week. This will be the last week that we're preaching from Psalm 23. Last week we studied and understood the fact that the Lord leads us. He leadeth me. We're going to look at that again. And you say, is it the same message? Could I have just come last week and skipped this week? No, it's a different message. The Word of God is deep. It's not just wide. It doesn't just cover every topic. But you could probably preach another 10, 15 messages and not scratch the surface of the depth of this psalm. The Bible says in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, this morning as we come again to this passage that is deep in its meaning, I pray that we would understand that meaning today. The real matter in the world today is that there's a lot of fake Christians. There's a lot of frauds, a lot of hypocrites. And what I'm asking these, your people, who are gathered here or under the sound of my voice this morning is how serious do we take the matter of God leading our very lives? The typical human being, Lord, as you know, basically wants you to leave them alone. But we are asking not that you would leave us, but rather that you would lead us. 
Help us to see particularly the leading today. The how, the why, and the where. I pray that you'll bless in this hour in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in the message, we set forward our hope for the year, and that is that God would lead us. We noted that He establishes a relationship with us in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, then He is not your shepherd. You are not of His fold. You are not of His sheep. You've not heard His voice. And according to John chapter 10, He has not laid down His life for you. Oh, it is there for you. It is free to you. It is for you, but you've not received it. It starts with that relationship, but then we noted in verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 that in the process of leading, He leads us to rest, He leads us to righteousness, He leads us to reality or His reality, not the temporal world's reality. He leads us to resources that He gives to us, and then ultimately He leads us to His reward. This morning, I want to further the thought of the leading of God, and not so much in the avenues or the places that He leads us to, but rather the process of His leading. I want us to consider how God will lead us if we will surrender to His leadership. The Apostle Peter, speaking to believers in Jesus Christ, said this in 1 Peter 2 and verse 25, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that Jesus Christ is the shepherd of your soul, of your inner man, of your spiritual being? Is Jesus Christ your Savior? This morning, I want us to truly understand our Savior as our shepherd or the shepherd of our soul. There's three facts from Psalm 23 about God's leading that can and will change your life if you will allow them to do so. First, we note in our outlines, He leads us with truth. How is it that the shepherd leads? The answer is it's with truth. He leadeth me, it says at the end of verse number 2, beside the still waters. This morning, I want you to hold your place here in Psalm 23, but I want you to turn to John, the gospel. Starting in John chapter 1, we'll be in just a few moments. I want us to trace this concept of truth. God is true. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. The truth is the still waters that we come to. If I'm going to come into a green pasture, it means I'm going to be able to feed and take nourishment. But if you have ever been around a herd or a flock or cattle, particularly in this instance, it's sheep. If you've been around them, they have to drink. It is the source of their life. May I say to you as a believer this morning, your source of life is truth. If you don't believe the absolute truth of God, you will not be saved. And that's our first point this morning. He leads us with truth, and that truth is absolute. It's absolute. It's unchanging. It's not relative. It's not subjective. It's not what you wish it to be or want it to be. It's what He says it to be. That's true. Still waters, my friend, are calm. They're placid. They're peaceful. Trouble waters are moving, they're tumultuous, there's great waves and they're heaping. The scene is of God leading your life in Psalm 23 in a way of quiet, clarity, and peace. 
You can't escape the fact that Jesus Christ is the truth. It's all over the Gospel of John. But I also can't escape the fact of the still waters being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that stillness. When Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee sleeping in the ship, the apostles were out in the midst of the tumult and the wind, the ferocity of the storm, the sea heaving, anything but still, and Jesus is peacefully asleep. They come and they get him. He comes out and he chides them for their faith. He loves them, but he chides them for their faith. Where is your faith? And in the process, he says to the storm, peace be still. The still waters that the shepherd of your soul wants to lead you to is the truth that rests or resides in his person, in who he is. The problem in today's world is many a Christian doesn't live by that truth. They don't live by that absolute. They live with the whim of the moment or the wish of their own heart. Jesus calms the storm of life and stills it for us as our shepherd because he brings into our soul and our life, I should say, absolute truth that should be lived by. Feelings, fears, emotions, and doubts will all vanish when we get to know the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason our lives are not filled with stillness, reason it's tumultuous and, and in a constant state of upheaval, is because we don't know the person of Jesus Christ or we don't hold to the truth of his person. John chapter 1, I had you turn there. We'll walk through a couple passages. In John chapter 1 and verse 17, after we are told in verse 12 how we are become the sons of God, he says this in John 1 and verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In chapter number 2, the ministry of John, or excuse me, in John chapter 2, the ministry of Jesus begins with him changing water into wine. It's a nature change that happens when we get saved. In chapter 3, he meets Nicodemus and talks to him in the early part of that chapter about what happens in the life of a believer. How do I get saved? And the answer is, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be physically alive, and you have to ask Jesus Christ to save you and become spiritually alive. Then, then, and only then can you see the kingdom of heaven. The end of chapter 3 of John, we are introduced to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist tells us who Jesus Christ is. The forerunner tells us of who Christ is. We come to chapter 4, it's the next time we really see truth on display, and Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. On his way through Samaria, Jesus is walking and talking with his apostles. He comes to the well, and he meets a woman there drawing water, and he says to her, draw water for me. And she says, hey, you're a Jew, why would I do that? I'm a Samarian. We're at odds with each other. We don't like each other. Jesus begins a process of investigation into her life, and he, as God, truth, absolutely, knows everything about her. And ultimately, she falls under deep conviction. In the process of that conviction, here's how Jesus teaches her, a Samarian, a woman of ill repute, how she not can only be saved, but how she can follow or walk with her shepherd of her soul, Jesus Christ. He says this in John 4 and verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you were to continue through the gospel of John, you would come to John chapter number 8. The beginning of that chapter, there's a woman who is taken in adulterous living, let's just say. 
in the act of immorality. It's always an interesting fact to me in John chapter 8 that the man who was also in that immorality is not hauled out with her and put on trial, but the woman is. Jesus in that wonderful picture is found on the ground drawing in the sand and has confronted those who want her to be stoned because of her immorality in that moment. And in the process, he kneels down after saying to them, ye who are without sin, cast the first stone. And then he begins to write in the sand. You ever wonder what he wrote in the sand? I personally believe forgiven. That's my opinion. Or mercy, perhaps, might be the word that he was writing in the sand. But, but he stands up from that, and he looks at her and says, hey, where are your accusers? And he sa- she said, there's, there's none that are here. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin thou not. In other words, don't commit any more sin. Stop sinning. Don't keep sinning. But I'm not going to condemn you. It is within that context that he later deals with the lie of the devil and the truth of God. Here's what he says in John 8, verses 31 and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. Does it set us free? That's, by the way, the most common misquoting of that verse is it sets us free. The answer is, of course, it sets us free. But truth has to be applied, as we'll see in our next point. Truth makes us free so long as we come back to the truth. If you live apart from the truth, if you don't live in the absolute nature of truth as God's revealed in his book, if you don't walk by this word, not by the word of a pastor, not by the word of a church, not by the word of a denomination, not by the word of a spouse or a friend or a loved one, it is by the word of God only that you are made free. That's what makes you free. And Jesus said to them, the truth, It'll make you free. By the way, if you're free, is your life very tumultuous? I mean, you're free, man. We're free indeed. Peace comes in freedom. We could continue on. John chapter 10 is where the good shepherd is. We will not look at a verse there, but certainly there's a lot of truth packed in that chapter. We just go to one more this morning in John 14 and verse 6. And Jesus there makes the statement that all of us know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Why? Because I'm the truth. I am the absolute truth. So when the psalmist has told us that he leadeth, us or leadeth me beside the still waters. He's talking about the calm nature that comes by resting in his absolute truth. Boy, that's freeing. It's liberating. Jesus is the absolute truth that calms the waters of our life, my friend. We live today in an age of relativism, and it's a relativism that's run amok. There is no controversy or storm in absolute truth. It's peace because it's in the presence of God. The storms rage against God, against His truth, when we live in subjective, personal, or relative truth. We're no longer being led by the Good Shepherd in those states as believers in Jesus Christ. By the way, for the believer this morning, all you need to do is pivot away from that kind of thinking of my truth or my reality is this. Look into the Word of God and find His reality and live by it. But let's trace that thought of relativism for just a moment this morning. I think in the modern age that we live, Christians can no longer be dumb. We must know the Word of God. We must know the truth. The arrogant liberal mind purports this. All truth is relative. 
Well, that statement alone is an absolute statement, so is it relative? You see, when you stop and think about their intelligence, it's not very much. If all truth is relative, then their very statement is relative as well, which means you can't trust it, for it can't be true. The problem with abstracting our lives to be lived by what we deem right or what we think is best is that it leaves us and the rest of the world in tumult. Look at the modern world. Everybody has their own truth. Well, it's my truth. Can I tell you something? There is no truth outside of God. That's the still water. That's what settles us. That's what gives us hope. The modern world is rife with relativistic truth, and it is the tool Satan uses to control us all or to keep us at each other's throats. Think of some simple truths that are absolute to live your life by that have been attacked by relativism and the truth being made relative. God created. Is that objective? Is that absolute? The alternative to that, the relative side of that, or relative truth, is evolution evolved, we might say. Which is absolute? And the answer is God created has never changed. It is definitive. You ask the average evolutionist how the universe came to be or how we cannot see the process of evolution currently taking place, occurring presently, that evolutionist will stutter, they'll stammer, and they'll ultimately shift the conversation away because they have no truth to stand on. They have no evidence. May I also say, if you live within that relativistic world of creation and origins and beginnings, if you live disbelieving that God created, then you will believe anything anyone tells you. It's the beginning of it all. That's why he begins by saying, in the beginning, God created. I've heard people say to me, well, Kyle, I have a good Christian friend that doesn't really believe in creation. Then they're not a good Christian friend. (gasps) I don't mean to take your breath away. I mean you to put truth in front of them. If you can't believe the first four words of the Bible, why do you believe any other part of the Bible? If it's absolute truth, it's the still waters to live your life by. Well, that will make me a real narrow-minded individual. Yeah, pretty narrow. 66 66 books worth of narrowness. (laughs) That's the absolute truth you live by. Here's another absolute truth. Man is a sinner. We might say man is sinful. They're inherently evil. God's word tells us that man is made in God's image, was initially good and innocent, but because Adam chose to depart from God's perfection, our race by nature is only evil continually, it is said in the days of Noah. That's the phrasing that is used. That's the absolute truth. I don't know if I like that. I, I don't like it, I can tell you that, but that's the truth. And I have to come to terms with what the truth is. Humanism, or secular humanism, which tells us that man is the height of all things, would have us believe that man is inherently good. Really? Look at the world. Look at the wickedness. They have no basis for why people do evil things, by the way, secular humanism. That's what relativistic truth leaves you. It leaves you holding the bag when the real questions come. 
Absolute truth says we are sinners, but we can be saved by the grace of God. Hallelujah. We can be changed in our nature. You can't change your nature without a supreme or divine being. Their answer to the question is why there is evil. They simply reply by saying those people that do evil are aberrations or anomalies. Well, the anomalies are running everything right now. Here's another one. And I haven't even, by the way, made it out of Genesis chapter 3 yet. I will not bore you all morning with the stillness of absolute truth. It's not boring, but it would take us a long time. I could go for 66 books and 1,300 chapters of the Bible and teach you one absolute truth after another. But that's what your job is. He's the one leading you beside the still waters. Here's another one. Genesis 1 and verse 27 and 28. Biology is binary. Oh. We just got kicked off of YouTube. We're no longer face friends with people. It's the truth. It's not meant to hurt someone or to harm someone. I'm not saying it hatefully. I'm saying it dogmatically. (gasps) Yes, dogmatic. You can be confident in truth. It's absolute. Trust it because you can trust him. Biology is binary. It is determined by God and established at conception. Again, (gasps) friends, that's absolute. In fact, it's the second thing that we're told about our race from creation. The first thing that we're told is that we are made in the image of God. I often ask those that I meet who are relative truth followers, and they may not say it outwardly, but they will not acknowledge God or they'll reject God or they won't accept God. I ask them, where does morality come from? Why is there good and evil? If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in his book, why is there good and evil? I mean, objectively, I can tell you, absolutely from truth, I can tell you why there's good and evil. But the person that is a relativist cannot tell me why there's morality at all. Why is murder bad? Well, because we know it's bad. We know it's bad because having, being image bearers of God or having God's image stamped upon us, we know the absolute truth that murder is bad. But how do you know that if you take away absolute truth? You see the stillness of the waters of the absolute? It's calm. It's like the kiddie pool. It's just relaxing. It's warm and pleasant. It's all of the good things of life. It is in those still waters that we should live and dwell. And yet, many Christians, many believers, get off into the, well, you know, that's just their truth. Look, if it's contrary to the Word of God, it's not truth. Just say it's their opinion. Or it's they want to do, or it's their wickedness, or their sinfulness. It's their choice. All of those are right statements, but it's not their truth. There is no truth outside of God. Let God be true and every man a liar. With Jesus Christ as the shepherd of our soul, he will lead us to the quiet assurance of life and what we are to be doing. But we notice the second word in that statement, and it teaches us that truth is not just absolute, it is also applicable, or it should be applied. It should be put into practice. The stillness is important in Psalm 23, but it is the substance that is far more important. What is it that's important? Water. Do you know what the shepherd did not lead them to? A rock. Now, Jesus is the rock, and that's a wonderful thing. 
And in Jesus, you can get water from a rock. You can actually study that in the Word of God. It's an absolute truth. But the shepherd leads them to still waters. What a truth. Water is a biblical type of God the Holy Spirit. So we find the stillness comes from the peace in Jesus Christ being the absolute truth. But there is then an application of that absolute truth that only comes through the person of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who refreshes, restores, and regenerates us. In Ephesians 5 and verse 26, Paul would have written to the readers there that we are washed, or we are, there is the washing of the water of the word that cleanses his church. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, we're told it's through the washing of regeneration and the working of the Holy Ghost in our lives. It is that process of washing that the Holy Spirit uses the absolute truth of the word of God to make us into what we ought to be. It is the sustenance we need. It is the still waters given to us. The water that our shepherd leads us to refreshes us, restores us, and renews us. If you're still there in John chapter 14, I haven't told you to turn back yet. Uh, Some of you might have, and I understand why. Let's go on to chapter 16 of the gospel of John. I told you in this first point, we're going to walk all the way through John, or at least a good bit through it. In John chapter number 16, we move from the truth being absolute in Jesus Christ. Not that it ever changes, but that absolute truth actually becomes ours. How does it become ours today? Is Jesus standing in this room today? No. Is the Holy Spirit here indwelling, hopefully, the preacher, and I pray that he is, and you a believer in Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes. He's indwelling and filling us. The water of our shepherd leads us to, refreshes, restores, and renews us as we take of that water. Notice chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus speaking here, I tell you the truth, it is expedient. It's best and most appropriate for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is the sustaining presence of God given to his sheep by the good shepherd. He literally says, if I depart, I will send him, the Holy Spirit, unto you. When did he depart? Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. The Bible says he ascended. When did the Holy Spirit usher forth? Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. It came and settled upon the believers in the upper room, the church. These are the waters of the Spirit's presence that come into our life. This is the still water that we all need to be led to day by day. This is the truth that God gives to us. The shepherd leads us to the water's edge, sets or sends the water to us, but you and I must take of it. Can I tell you a secret? Water is only helpful if you drink it. I've been told, I've never tried this, you can go about seven or eight days without eating anything. You can go maybe two days without dropping one ounce of hydration and you're dead. The point and the picture is this. If the shepherd of our soul loves us, and he does, he will lead us to a place where we can draw still waters from. Absolute truth applied every day in our lives makes us sheep of his pasture. 
How foolish that sheep in God's pasture then do not take of the water that is theirs freely. We deny or dismiss the working of the Holy Spirit or His convicting in our life. You know what the Holy Spirit does to the unbeliever? He does this. He constantly taps on their door when the preaching is done. When the gospel message goes out, when the truth of absolute truth is presented, the Holy Spirit convicts us. He pricks our heart. He makes us aware that this is true, and you know it. What does he do in the life of the believer? Well, in his indwelling, he wants to fill us full and all. He wants it to be completely ours as we yield completely to him. The psalmist literally says that the restoration of his soul is what the Lord does. But if you don't take of that water, there will be no restoration. There will be no renewal. There will be no refreshing. And I find often in churches a lot of dried up and nearly dead Christians who have not allowed the shepherd to lead their soul. The truth that gives you life is the truth that will guide your life as well. In verse 12, the very next verse after we cut off reading there in John 16, he says this, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Huh. I can't bear them now. I mean, imagine Peter hearing that. Imagine the the apostle John listening to that. I want to hear it all. You can't bear it now. You're still grasping the absolute truth. The applicable truth comes when the Spirit of God arrives. That's when the still waters are truly in your life. He goes on in verse 13, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. The waters of spiritual truth are the waters that the shepherd leads us to to drink from. Have you? Do you understand the still waters? The shepherd, God, leads us with his truth, both absolute and very applicable. Are you living and walking in his truth? Second, we find that he leads us through testing. If you look back in Psalm 23... You will find that beginning in verse 3, he says, He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We are all led in different paths. It's one of the great privileges of pastoring a church now of almost 300 people. Is I know almost completely, although I'm getting older and I'm beginning to forget things, your backgrounds and your history. I know the paths of life that you have had to travel. I know the successes and I know the disappointments. I know the things you're glad of and the things that you would not like to remember anymore. And the process of that as an under-shepherd, meaning one to the chief shepherd, the good shepherd and the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, as an under-shepherd, my responsibility is to see the paths that you're on. And I'm glad to say so many of you are walking in paths of righteousness. But we find here the path of righteousness is not a path of ease. That's the problem. Most people believe their Christian life and their Christian journey should be one of real great ease. Oh, it should just be simple being a Christian. Can I tell you something? You're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
If you are a child of the devil and have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, say, that's harsh. Well, John chapter 8 and verse 44 says, year of your father, the devil. (laughs) He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. If you're of him, those three are not set against you. They're working with you. But if you're a Christian, the path of righteousness is not going to be an easy one. It's going to be hard. You have to say no a lot. I don't like saying no. It's part of being a Christian. Part of denying yourself. Friends, it is through testing, it is through trials, and it is through trouble that our faith is seen to be true. What the psalmist is saying here is that he is leading me, he is walking me, he is guiding me in paths of righteousness. What is the very next thing he says in verse 4? Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Look, it's going to get tough on this path of righteousness. It's not the cakewalk you think it's going to be. Having provided green pastures, safety, and still waters, sustenance, or truth to draw from, the shepherd of our souls leads in paths that are right for us, righteous. Righteous by his standard and according to his holiness. One old preacher said it this way about your faith, and it's a good statement. You might want to write it in your notes. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. I just don't want to endure this affliction. I don't want to endure this problem. I don't want to put up with this. And the answer is, none of us really do, if we're just being honest. But the process of the journey, the walking with God, following the shepherd, is that the shepherd of our soul says, I know what's best for you, even if we don't like it in that moment. Our good shepherd has promised to lead us through testing. In letter A, that testing may be intense. It may get harder in the coming days to be a Christian in this world. I wonder how many churches will be full of our hippity-hop, modern, feel-goodism churches when life gets real hard to be a Christian. I mean, man, oh man, everybody in the NFL is praying right now. Everybody loves God. Everybody's on an E, I guess for the right reason. Where was that three weeks ago? My son had the most, I think, intelligent and poignant thought. I didn't say this in the early service, and I thought he wouldn't be in here because he helped in the early service, so I'm going to embarrass him. Drew said to me, Dad, what good does it do if they get up off that knee and just start acting like the devil? And the answer is not much. Not much. And then I had the opportunity to say, and that's why being a Christian and living right and righteously for Christ, no matter the circumstances, is important. People see you're a fraud. Testing may be intense. In fact, James tells us as much. In James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, My brethren, or believers, count it all joy when you fall into diverse testings or temptations, knowing this, that the trying, that again is testing of your faith, worketh patience. That last word, patience, means endurance. It builds up an ability to know that God is good, and what he's doing is good for you. God uses tests to purify us as we journey with him in our life of faith. Who is the classic Bible example of suffering for righteousness and faith? Old Job. 
Now, here's the best testimony I've ever heard. And if Job was one verse long, this would be a wonderful testimony, and it would be worthy of being in the Word of God. Here's what Job 1.1 says. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. It means he chewed up and spit out every evil choice that came into his life. I don't want it. That's the best way to understand what eschewed means. But that would be a great testimony to have. Unfortunately, if you don't know Job, there's 42 more chapters of his life that are given to us because that's the best it got until the end. His path of righteousness or the path that God had to make him right in his faith and right in every way before him was a journey that none of us would sign up for and one that he struggled to be on. From that verse in Job 1 and verse 1, God asks Satan, Hey, have you ever seen somebody as righteous as this guy? And he means it in the most sincerest way. And God is omniscient. He knows, one, what Satan is going to reply with, and two, what's going to happen in Job's life. The reason God is asking Satan that question is so that we, in reading that lesson some 3,000 years later, can understand that the path of righteousness is one that is carefully walked. Because it may be designed and given to us in that moment, in the intensity of it, by God for our good. Satan's answer, if you know Job's story in chapter 1, he complains, God, you protect every step of his life. Why shouldn't he be righteous? I mean, you're good to him. The enemy's conclusion is found in verse 11 of chapter 1. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he'll curse thee to thy face. From that verse, God allows for Job's path in life to divert from blessing and supply to one of testing and trial, which is equally righteous and good on God's part. That's what we must understand. He lost his children, he lost his possessions, and he ultimately had his wife saying to him, curse God and die. In other words, just end it all, man. It's not worth it. In the immediacy of this intense testing, three... Supposed friends stop by to give Job their opinion. If you got friends like that, I might give you a knuckle sandwich. If Wes showed up in the office on a Monday and said, Hey, Kyle, I think you're sinning and this is the problem, I might give him a knuckle sandwich. Now, he's bigger than me, so he'd pound me like dirt, but I might say it to him. The truth is, these three friends, as well-intentioned as they were, missed the reason for God's trial in Job's life. It was a path of righteousness. The reason for Job's testing was that, was that uh, this was God's path for him to walk. It was an intense test of faith, yet Job trusted God. The point of testing, however intense it may be, is do you trust God? Job did. Job's response is recorded many times to his friends, and one time at the end to God, and God thunders into his life. <laughs> be careful when you start questioning God. But in responding to Zophar, one of his so-called friends, who that friend claimed that Job was a hypocrite and a liar, that's why God was judging him. (laughs) Thanks, friend. See you next week for coffee? I imagine he and Zophar were sitting at a Hardee's somewhere and having a cup of coffee. Here's what Job says in response to Zophar. It's a good lesson for us to understand the path that we're on. Job says in chapter 13 and verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. 
but I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Hear diligent, listen carefully to my speech and my declaration with your ears. Behold, now I have ordered my cause. I know what's going on. I'm aware of what God is doing. I know that I shall be justified. Who is he that will plead with me? For now, if I hold my tongue, I shall give up the ghost. Only do not two things unto me. Now the pivot here is to him talking to God or generally about God. Then I will not hide myself from thee, Lord, he is saying. He says to God, do not withdraw thine hand from me. Let not thy dread make me afraid. In other words, the dread in his life was the difficulty that he was going through, the test or the trial, the trouble that he was in. He says, look, this is my path of righteousness. Do not let me become afraid in this moment. Let me walk by faith. Let me live by faith. Then call thou and I will answer, or let me speak and answer thou me. How many are mine iniquities and sins? Make me to know my transgression and my sin. That is the right answer in the midst of a trial of your life or the testing of your faith. Wherefore hidest thou thy face and holdest me from for thine enemy? Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro? He's saying, God, why are you doing this to me? It's okay to wonder why, but we don't leave the path of righteousness walking with him. Wilt thou pursue the dry stubble? For thou writest bitter things against me. This is tough. And makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. Thou puttest my feet also in stocks. Now notice as it relates to the paths of righteousness, the awareness that Job had. And look as narrowly unto all my paths. You're looking very intently or carefully on how I'm living. And he as a rotten thing consumeth as a garment that is moth-eaten. In other words, I'm eaten up. Well, then we go to chapter 14, and from chapter 14, we go to verse number 1, and the Bible says there, Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. Your path of righteousness may be an intense path that God asks you to walk. I don't know. But God has a goodness in that path for you. The testing of our faith may be intense, but let her be, it must be instructive. Righteousness is the purpose of the leading. It is a path that we must walk, a life that God has planned for us, things that He works in us and through us. But the ultimate end is righteousness or right actions by His standards. Whatever path God has for you, like whatever path He has for me, I will walk along in a way that is right before Him. The best learning is often done not through information but experience. I tell my boys that all the time. I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you, but then you have to do it, do it, do it. The absolute truth has to become applied truth. It is a path of righteousness. God's pathway will teach each of us through the test of faith so that we might faith so that we might know learn and understand his goodness. James, in that passage I referenced earlier, continues in verses 4 and 5, not just about the intensity of the test, but also the instruction in it. He says this, But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. Verse 5, If any lack wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is? It's the full application and usefulness of truth in our life. The book of Proverbs has a wonderful teaching on this. 
there is instruction that leads to knowledge, which leads to understanding, which results in wisdom. That is the progression in the book of Proverbs. The instructions are the black and white, the absolutes of God. The knowledge is I have read them and I understand them and I know them. Understanding is now I've started to do them in my life. And wisdom is the fullness of I understand how this makes sense according to God's plan. And so, James says, as that patience, that endurance is working in you, if you lack wisdom on that path of righteousness, ask of God. That giveth to all men liberally, he will freely give to you the truth that is necessary to make it through. Well, I'll just run and ask pastor. I will be glad to sit down with you. But many in this congregation, many in this body, many in this family, I have sat down with, and what do I do? And some of you are even smiling as I say this. I just open the Bible and say, here's the hope. Here's the help. Don't trust me. Trust this. You say, well, man, that makes your job easy. Well, it doesn't because I have to do it a lot because I love people and I want to sit down and say, trust this, trust this, trust this. It is all that pertains to life and godliness. Our friend Job learned that lesson, didn't he? You skip over all of the stuff that happens in between, and there's some good stuff, especially towards the end. When God thunders in and we see him in all of his grandeur and all of his glory and all of his might, it's a very intimidating thought. And then we come to the very end and the last words that Job speaks, this perfect and upright man, one that loved God and eschewed evil or hated evil. Here are his last words after meeting God on that path of righteousness in his full glory. Here's what Job says. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee. I get it. I see who you are. I understand what you want. What is the answer beyond that, verse 6? Wherefore, or because of this, I abhor myself. I hate myself. I'm not here to preach about self-loathing this morning. I'm simply saying, when you get a very clear picture of who God is, you will also get a very clear picture of who you are. You know the problem for most Christians? After they get saved, they stop following the shepherd of their soul in the paths of righteousness and beside that still water, and they start thinking themselves something special. My friend, you are nothing but dust and ashes. It is a constant life of repentance in that dust and ashes. Literally, the phrase dust and ashes means by fire, everything is consumed. That's the ash. And the dust is of the substance that I come from. Nothing! Dirt! If you remember that, you'll always be right with God. What did Job repent from ultimately in his path of righteousness? And the answer is his struggle with doubt and confusion about God and God's leading in his life. He discovered that God had been leading. God had been loving. If the good shepherd has led or is leading you through trial or testing, remember it is to grow your faith and to deepen your relationship with him, your trust in him. The shepherd of our soul leads us in truth through testing. And then finally, and I must be quick this morning, he leads us in triumph or to triumph. Excuse me, that's the right preposition, to triumph. Verse number six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Following God causes us to be in his presence. Where he goes, we go. And where he goes, his goodness and mercy always go. It is much better to make choices that then keep us close to Christ and draw us nearer to him all the time. The word follow that is used here in Psalm 23 and verse six means to accompany 
or to walk alongside with. In other words, as we are going after our shepherd, his goodness and his mercy accompany us. We can look to the right and look to the left and say, how you doing, mercy? How you doing, goodness? It's a great day, isn't it? It sure is. Let's get up and get going. That's the mindset of the Christian in success, in triumph, in victory. And may I say to you, friends, that's where the shepherd wants you to live in victory. And yet very many Christians live in defeat, in despair, in despondency. Victory goes with us because we go with him. Triumph in a world of death, despair, and destruction is to live within the goodness and mercy of God. God wants us to triumph, and he guarantees us triumph. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Look, look at that statement. There is no equivocation in Paul's mind. There's no shadow of a doubt. This is a man that's following the good shepherd. This is the one that is walking closely behind him. He is beside the still water, and he is in the path or on the path of righteousness. And he says, in that place, I win every time. We live in a world of defeat. We live in a world of disappointment. He goes on and says, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. In other words, the saltiness, that, that flavor that we add because of our Christian faith. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. In them that are saved, in them, them that, that perish. To the one, those that perish, we are the savor of death unto death. And to the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things, he says, he asks. Who is sufficient? Who's able to do this? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity. That word sincerity means truth. But as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He says, for we are of sincerity, that is truth, and we are of God. That's the secret. That's how to be victorious. Be of truth and be of God. Triumph in Christ comes as we follow him. There's no victory apart from Jesus Christ for the believer. Triumph is found, letter A, in his goodness. We noted what goodness meant last week. It means welfare or to our benefit. Following God benefits our well-being, we might say. Surely it does, the psalmist tells us. And surely it follows us. Far too many Christians are defeated in this world because they live in fear, they live in depression, they live in hypocrisy, or they live in denial. God wants us to live in a state of His truth through the enabling of His grace. The benefit of His presence, I put in your notes. That is our eternal state, and thus that is our eternal life today. So I ask the question, what is keeping you from living in the presence of God? In the fullness of His goodness. Victory is not found in falling and rising up again. Now, I'm going to be careful in that. There is certainly restoration and there is satisfaction that God is forgiving when we fail and we fall. But that's not victory. That's just getting back to the starting line. When the Bible says a just man falleth seven times yet riseth up again. Once you rise up, the goal is to walk in the leading of the shepherd day by day. That's where victory is. And that's the problem. So often as Christians, we're like, well, I can do this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin. And it's not that big a deal because, hey, our just man falls seven times, yet riseth up again. That is a wonderfully encouraging verse to those who have sinned. But it's not the victorious verse. Victory is walking and living in his goodness and mercy all the days of our life. So what is keeping you from living in his presence? 
Victory is found in choosing to benefit our well-being by always walking closely with God. Notice I have not said it involves obeying a church or following every pastor's whim. It is you in God's goodness. It is you having the benefit of His presence accompanying you every day of your life. An unbeliever who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior does not know this goodness, nor can they know His goodness. The believer in Jesus can say with David, as he said in Psalm 34 and verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. The triumph is in His goodness, but the triumph is also in His grace. You say, wait, the word is mercy here. You're just being a Baptist preacher having to get all your letters right. And the answer is, thank you for noticing. But mercy and grace are the two sides of the same coin. Here's what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2 and verse 4. But but God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show notice the riches first were of his mercy. He might in the ages to come because of his mercy show us the exceeding greatness of his riches in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. The exceeding riches of his grace. In the Bible, mercy is, ext- is extended to an offender in the form of forgiveness or to the sufferer in the form of healing and comfort. Mercy can then be characterized as a compassionate treatment of those in distress. And God says, along this path and by those waters, in that truth, there are going to be moments of distress, but I've got you. I'm your God, and I'm merciful to you. You say, if it's mercy, why'd you have his right grace? The answer is... We have mercy following us because God is gracious to us. Living in victory is recognizing the mercy we have because of the grace God extends to us. Living daily in His graciousness, we might say. He is rich in mercy. He is eager, willing, and wanting to forgive and to restore. That mercy accompanies the believer every day of your life. Live in victory, my friend, not in defeat. As we close our thoughts this morning, the good shepherd of our souls leads us with truth that is absolute and applicable. He leads us through testing that will be or may be intense and must be instructive. And yes, he leads us to triumph through his goodness and his grace. So does he lead your life? That's two Sundays now as a pastor I've asked you this. I can tell you in 14 and a half years since we started the church and there was only four people or five people or eight people showing up at a service, I've never preached from the same passage two weeks in a row. There must be a reason for it. I've never asked the same question in a closing of a sermon two weeks in a row. But the question is what I asked last week. Is God leading your life? Is Jesus Christ the shepherd of your soul? We noted last week that in the relationship he's established with, he establishes with us, he then leads us to rest, righteousness, reality, resources, and rewards that are all his, verses 1 through 6. But today we've understood that in that process of leading us to those places, he leads us through the process of doing so with truth, through testing, 
to ultimate triumph in him. That's what God wants for you. That's where he leads you. It's why he saved us and called us out and called us by his name. Is he leading your life? Father, thank you for this day.